0: So these words will come up on the screen. And the reading today is from John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Just... Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper one after the guests have had too much to drink. But you've saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Let's pray now for Jeff as he comes to share with us. Father, thank you that you care not just for the um, the healing and freeing of people, but also for, um, for celebration, for reflection, for water into wine, for every aspect of our lives. Thank you, Lord, for Jeff and the work that he's put into this sermon, um, the prep time and the prayer. God, I pray that you would uh, bring glory to your name through his words today and give him a clear mind and uh, clear words. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Jeff.
1: Thank you. This uh, is a marvelous little passage. There's a lot more happening here than meets the eye. And uh, uh, it's the, as it was just read to us, you can see it's the, uh, the first of Jesus' signs. Jesus does many miracles through the Gospels, but John prefers to call the miracles of Jesus signs. They point beyond merely the miraculous to something about. God and his work. If you want to understand Jesus' work in John, then uh, really a way to look at these signs is that they're actually 3D parables. They're the equivalent of the stories he tells for the ear gate in, say, Luke, uh, are the signs which are done for the eye gate in John. Both of them are uh, revelations about his real identity and his Real purpose in being incarnate for those who had have uh, ears to hear in the synoptic gospels, and for those who had have eyes to hear in John, these are given, <clears throat> and we pick up this story that it's uh, basically the, the situation. Obviously, it's a wedding, but uh, a wedding in this culture was uh, uh, really quite a a, uh, um, a complicated game. To get to this day had involved the negotiations and the dealing between two families as they checked each other out and their credentials. Wedding wasn't something that just you fell into by virtue of the dent of romance. And uh, a wedding ceremony was uh, quite a game in itself. It was a time where you established uh, your uh, kudos in the community uh, by virtue of the quality of the wedding you put on. And the quality of that wedding was determined also by the guests that you could invite. And in this particular wedding, we see that Jesus and his band of men, his disciples, have been uh, invited. And uh, that would have been uh, quite a a coup to get Jesus onto the wedding list. To have a rabbi there was uh, bonus points for your wedding. And Jesus has been invited to this particular wedding probably not just out of uh, courtesy but because he was going to do something for the honour rating of those people who were having that uh, that wedding. We read that uh, Mary was there. It took place in Cana of Galilee and Jesus' mother was there. It sounds, in fact, like um, uh, (coughs) she uh, was there before Jesus and the disciples arrived. Uh, She must have had some family connection, Auntie Mary. Uh, you can always use an extra Jewish auntie at a wedding. But uh, she uh, she was there and she was going to <clears throat> help by her advice. And uh, it's into that situation that Jesus walks. Now, all of a sudden, we, we haven't heard anything about the wedding, but a wedding is a covenant feast and the central part of that feast is wine. In fact, the word for banquet really means drinking, <clears throat> and this was what a lot of what went on. It was a matter of making certain toasts, not just uh, drinking for the fun of it. But wine is a game in itself, and it's a very complex game. This wine game. Um, <clears throat> you know, you read in scriptures about uh, people drinking strong drink. Well. Undiluted wine was how it was transported around the country. It was a transferable commodity, one of the few in the ancient world that you could transfer. And uh, the only people who drank wine neat were either unappreciative idiots or drunks. And good wine was uh, vintage wine. It was wine that had been diluted sufficiently to please the palate. Uh, In fact, the master of ceremonies that we read about here, his job wasn't just to be like an MC at our wedding breakfast. His job was to actually uh, calculate the, the alchemy and the calculus that went into this was quite extraordinary. He had to work out what was appropriate to go with which dish and he would be spicing the wine and diluting it and trying to stretch it out so that they wouldn't run out of wine. And that would be good wine. Uh, And that was his job. So all of a sudden we have jumped from this uh, happy occasion, which has been months and probably years in the planning. We don't find out anything about that. We just find that the wine was running out. And as this version says, when the wine was gone, then Jesus' mother comes and does her Aunt Mary thing with Jesus. But uh, you seem to run out of wine in the wine game uh, would have set this party into total panic. Running out of wine was an offence. It could be taken to court. You could be sued for ruining a wedding by running out of wine. Effectively, it meant that the host, uh, or usually the groom's family, were cheapskates, and they didn't want to spend enough money to get enough wine. Or they thought you would not notice that they're diluting it so far down that it was almost like dishwater. And that itself was taken as a a sign of what they thought of you. It was an offence. So right then, Mary decides, uh uh-oh, any minute now, we're going to have an awful lot of embarrassment. We're going to have an awful lot of offence when people discover that the wine has run out. People are going to be yelling. People are going to be leaving. And that's not the end of it. And so she goes to Jesus. Now Mary knows her son somewhat, but I don't think she knows him totally. And uh, she just sort of goes, sidles up to him and says, uh, <clears throat> "They have no wine." <laughs> she she's saying, she knows that his his birth was somehow odd, and her son is. You know, as a young boy, he was a little bit precocious when it came to rabbinical teaching, and um, he's sort of a bit touched. Maybe this is a time, given all that we're hearing about his prophetic status, maybe this is a time to do a trick. I mean, he, he needs the following. He's only got 12 at the moment. He could use a bit more following, uh, a good display of his skill set, uh, that couldn't hurt anything. I mean, it's win win. Uh, we save the embarrassment. We save the wedding. He builds a reputation. Yeah, it's a, it's just, I'm just putting it out there. <laughs> That's all she's saying. It's just, uh, yeah, here's a great opportunity. Win win. It's a no brainer, isn't it? And Jesus, his response is quite astonishing for us, not to her. You see, he knows that she's trying to leverage him. She's trying to wedge him into a corner to make him do something for this situation. And he says to her, and there the words are in verse 4, woman, not mum, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Fascinating thing, but you see, Jesus knows the meaning behind the words. He knows his mother, and he knows what the way she thinks and how she's constructed her thinking. And usually when Jesus rebukes someone in the Gospels, it's pretty usually uniform that uh, there's some degree of contempt being held there. People have attempted to box Jesus into their assumptions, and he just breaks out of those boxes immediately. He does the same thing with Peter at the point of his confession of messiahship. Similarly here, Jesus breaks out of his low horizon thinking. He regards it as contempt. And when he says, my time has not yet come, he's not saying, hey, mayor, this is my day off. I wanted to come to a wedding. Hey, I don't want to be doing work. You know, he's not saying... Uh, Now, I've got a different idea of when to manifest my... He's basically saying my glory is not manipulable. You can't force me to do my ministry. I have a schedule all of my own, and it's not governed by the immediate. When you run out of a car parking space, that doesn't mean I am beholden to find you one. This is not manipulable. This is low-horizon thinking. Effectively, he doesn't need the publicity. He's running off a different script. He has a different horizon. She's thinking of the immediate horizon. He's thinking of the ultimate. And that's the one that governs his action. What is his script? What is the script that Jesus works through? Obviously, as we read uh, the Gospels, His script is the law and the prophets, and particularly the prophet Isaiah was one that uh, he seemed to quote a lot uh, and uh, seemed to govern his ideas. And he would have picked that up rationally through his rational mind. But I think there's more happening here, and this is one passage that shows us something of the, the inner psychology of Jesus and his uniqueness as the one who is... One God incarnate. This is one mind, but two natures. Two natures operating where rationally he has things out of his human existence. But then he has to govern that with his awareness. He has a pre-existence that goes back to eternity. And all the aspirations of the Godhead are also stored in that mind. And there's something about this situation which suddenly trips the switch between, in that mind, that single mind, the two natures and the two levels upon which this one has been living. We can't even get our heads around that. It's beyond us. But it's worth realizing that Jesus' turmoil in this situation is far more than just what Mary has put on his plate. It's about himself. It's sort of like he's been here before. He's sort of having that deja vu experience all over again. It's a, a trigger to unthought tracks. What has uh, been known suddenly becomes thought. And that's a new thing. Jesus' deep intuitions are triggered, not only his reasoning and memory of scripture. What was the inner theater props that might have triggered this? I conceive here a picture just to my imagination of Jesus um, sort of in the background of this wedding, maybe up on a mezzanine floor. This might have been in a synagogue. Who knows? Some public meeting hall. And as uh, he looks out on this, this occasion, what would he have seen? He would have seen all the people taking their seating in the semi-circular arrangement of the tables where the chief table in the middle of the bottom of the circle would have been the bride and groom and the families that would be spread out either side of them not unlike our own wedding breakfast today he would have seen people coming and going as they came into this place as they even some the more devout even between courses they would they would adjourn over to these water pots by the side carrying between you know 75, um, liters of water each, strange crescent-shaped necks on, on them. And they would tip this water over their hands, not because they're interested in hygiene and you know, sort of had some obsessive compulsive disorder, but because they were obsessed by kosher, ceremonial cleanness. And they were doing what the law, and moreover, the rabbis who interpreted the law had laid upon them, they were being publicly holy people. And the assumption was in Judaism was that public holiness would sort of count for internal holiness. It was the best you could get. And that's what they were doing. And then there was a flood of consciousness as he looked at this scene and heard vows given promises of fidelity, he thinks of his experience of wedding himself as God. See, God had a bride. Wedding was a covenant, and a covenant was a wedding. You were joined to the other party. And that's what the Old Testament war was. It was a wedding ceremony. But as God reflects upon this, and particularly we see in the prophet Hosea, as God reflects upon the unhappy alliance of being married to Israel, he realises that you could summarise his wedding, as a, his marriage, as a complete disaster. He had married a prostitute, one who had no intention of fidelity, one who would only break his heart again and again and again. A remarkable little book, Hosea, we're not going into that this morning, but please read it sometime. As God lets Hosea, through the agony of being married to a prostitute, experience something of God's own inner anguish. And you see, that inner anguish has been triggered and has become known to the rational mind of the humanity of Jesus, as he recalls Israel's history. We've got some verses here which I think, Uh, will help uh, help us uh, get into this experience of Jesus. For instance, in Deuteronomy, um, Deuteronomy 7.12, which is the covenant book, the second law, uh, we read these words that speak of this uh, uh, use of wine at a wedding. If you pay attention to these laws and are careful to follow them, the Lord your God will keep his covenant of love with you his wedding, uh, his marriage, as he swore to your ancestors, he will love you and bless you and increase your numbers. He'll bless the fruit of your womb, the crops of your land, your grain, and new wine and olive oil will be blessed more than any other people. So, wine itself was a symbol of God's intention to bless his promise. But uh, it's also used by the prophets deliberately of covenants being broken, of unfaithfulness. And so in Isaiah and a lot of other places, we read this little text, Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 22, when God tells Isaiah through the word his words what he thinks of the nation, he says, your silver has become slag or dross. It's rubbish. Your choice wine is diluted with water. It's just the very thing that's been happening in the last few minutes of this pending disaster of the marriage of Canaan. It's so similar to the fact that when God comes and weighs up Israel, he, he sees a people who promised everything but failed to deliver and have become weaker and weaker in their concentration when it comes to their inner holiness, their godliness, their everything that God finds revolting. He cannot stomach them. And that's the the dilution of the symbol of vows. I I found an interesting little one uh, from Song of Songs. That's not how Jews read their history, though. Um, the, The official version was that they've rebuilt the temple and all the kosher things are going well, and therefore in this day they thought that things were doing pretty well. And they have this deluded picture of how they're doing. For instance, in Song of Songs, and you might, I find this interesting, I don't know if you will, but you read this fascinating, uh, it's a, a terribly uh, erotic uh, book about uh, the love of uh, two lovers. Uh, that's really what it is. But the Jews uh, couldn't have you read it that way. They, the, the rabbis spiritualized this book and, and they read everything allegorically. So when they read a passage like this, your navel is a, is a round... This is a, 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 a lover writing to his uh, his beloved. Your navel is a rounded goblet that never lacks blended wine. Strange navel, that one. Your waist is a mound, a mound of wheat uh, encircled by lilies. Well, uh, that's one way to impress a girl. Uh, I think if you sent something like that through Facebook, that... that uh, we'd probably be helping police with their inquiries um, at that time. But uh, you see, that's the the, the, the Jews, when they interpreted this, particularly this, your navel is a crescent shaped embossed goblet, that uh, really was what it was, uh, the translation meant. It will never be short of mixed wine. Then uh, they interpreted that the wine was the law. And... Uh, the navel was Jerusalem, and the crescent-shaped goblet was obviously the Sanhedrin who sat in this crescent-shaped arrangement of seats, just like at this wedding. And they thought that God was in his heaven, the Sanhedrin were cold, running things, and you know, all was right with the world. They're quite deluded about that. But then Jesus is hit by one more verse. You see, he knows himself now in an immediate, intuitive way somehow that Israel's history of unfaithfulness cannot be reformed out of them. No more New Year's resolutions will change Israel. They have had their time. They have become more diluted and the wine has run out. This is the time of judgment. On Israel their day is up any minute now there is no more hope he has given them the land they were faithless he has taken away the land in exile they remain faithless they're back in the land something has got to change where can we break this cycle somehow That cycle can only be broken from outside. And Jesus also knows there are other prophecies in the apocalyptic prophets at the end of the book that he reads and lives. There is the book of Joel, for instance, that speaks of this prophecy. And Joel says, the Lord was jealous for his land and took pity on his people. And the Lord replied to them, I'm sending you grain and new wine and olive oil, enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you the scorn of the nations. Joel looked forward to a different day on a different plane and a different horizon where this cycle of promise, blessing and faithfulness and throwing it back in your face to God would be broken. That's the picture we have here. And very quickly, a whole lot of things at this wedding happen in quick succession. Jesus decides to make Mary's low horizon coalesce with his higher horizon and his grand scheme for Israel. That's what's happening here. She thinks he's helping her out of a spot. Actually, he's changing the destiny of Israel. And he takes this moment to do this object lesson, this 3D parable. And he's, Mary sees a glint in his eye and she basically says to the attendants, do whatever he says. She senses something is about to happen. She's seen her boy like this before. And this one is there's a fire in the belly and she stands back and, and the attendants come to attention. And he gives them a couple of orders. And first one he says is, go and get those water pots and fill them to the brim with water. With effect, Effectively, it's not just preparing for a miracle, but you cannot put anything into it. If this miracle is going to occur, it won't be through sleight of hand. These are filled to the brim. But I think moreover, it's a little bit like Jesus saying, Israel's sins and defilement, which is represented by this water, has been filled to the brim and overflowing. And it's it can't get any worse. It's a little bit like Elijah in his context, context with the prophets of Baal when it's his turn to call fire from heaven, similar to this situation here. He orders the attendants to douse his sacrifice with water, make it even more hopeless. Jesus sees the sin of Israel as completely diluting their holiness. They're disappointing to the extreme. And they do it. And then he says, go and take some of that and take it to the master of ceremonies. In other words, don't take it to the master and get him to do his normal alchemy. Just take it and get him to taste it. This is typical of Jesus' miracles. He frequently tells people to go to the authorities and to witness to them, and that's what he will be doing. There won't be any intermediary needed here. And they take it to the master, and he tastes this wine, and he may say, you're a real killer, aren't you, he says to the host. Yeah, you had us all in suspenders. we, We thought you'd run out. And uh, yeah, this good stuff stashed away. Well, you know that's unusual. Usually, you you you, you know, stretch this out and you give that at the start and pull everyone that that's what they're drinking the rest of the night when their tongues are a little less discerning. But not you. Well, you want a real kid. I and mean, he he he's uh, quite astonished by this discovery of real vintage wine. You can't improve on that. What is Jesus trying to say? about himself and his mission, by this 3D parable. Jesus is saying that there is a new paradigm of religion entering the world right in his moment, in this time, at his behest, from the outside in. Jesus is not calling for people to get more spiritual, to attend to their spiritual disciplines, to work harder, to try and be more virtuous, that would be the message of Stoicism, the Greeks, but not Jesus. He's are saying nothing can change you except a total transformation, but that's what I give from the inside out. You see, the nature of man-made religion is that it's always a superficial transaction. You give what you must. You oblige God. You force the hand of heaven to answer your prayers or to bless you. And that you then you get the goods. And you might be somewhat grateful, but your heart doesn't have to be in it. You just have to know the techniques. It doesn't matter whether that's occultic or pagan or Jewish or Catholic. It's a transactional religion that's made up by men. It always seems fair and just. You shouldn't get anything for free. It should be justice, justice, justice. You give what the deity wants, and then he's got to bless you. That's the tone of man-made religion right across the world, and that's how you know it's man-made, because men cannot understand the goodness of God. They can't believe in it. Jesus' religion is a core transformation. Very different model. Very different humanity. It's gain what you can't get. Give what you could never achieve. You gain the goodness of God at the core. It's not transactional. It's transformation. A couple of months back um you know it's, as all our kids are getting married or you know finding bows and boyfriends and girlfriends and turning them into um, life partners it, it's great to get to know them and to to see their choices of life partners and uh, a couple of months back um, we were having a conversation with uh one of those partners and he He's a very interesting chap and we, we enjoy his company a lot. And we're having a talk and he turned the conversation around to religion. And for something, for some reason that only God knows, there's a few questions in his mind. And You see, this fellow had been brought up in a Greek Orthodox family and been very involved in Greek Orthodox church. But then the family had sent him to a Catholic School, where, as a Catholic boys' school, he had been taught a lot of basic Catholic ideas about the sort of things God wants and God's scale of virtues and how he rewards some things and then other things get extra rewards. It's it's a total man-made system. And the, he used to be really bothered by this, so he'd go to his Greek Orthodox religious and they, he would say, you know, what are the things I've got to be do that to basically be right with God to please God and they'd wrote off one sort of list of dues and then he'd go to the Catholic chaplains at school and he'd say hold on my Greek Orthodox fellow says these are the dues and this is this is the point scheme this is the currency I need to be able to transact with God he'd go to the Catholic and they'd say well, no 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 that's not right you've got to actually do this and Go to confession, mass, and then you've got to do this. And if you do these works, then, you know, that'll stand you in good stead. It's transact, transact, transact. And then he says to us, basically, so what do you Baptists believe? What are the Baptist works? And I I wanted to break right out of that. I, I don't represent Baptist technology for holiness. And it was revolutionary to him. see that God gives what he wants he puts in what he wants to see come out that's a very different relationship it's a transformational one God does want holiness and so he gives it that's the nature of Christian religion it's a total revolutionary picture it's not a conflict of authorities Christ has had enough of that He wants a new paradigm human being, one that is just like him, and he's prepared to go to lengths to implant not just a new app that will need constant upgrade, but totally change the motherboard. That's the nature of it. You know, that day as this miracle happens, as we read in uh, verse 10, there was one guy standing there, Peter. And we read in verse 11, sorry, that he was one that saw that day in this amazing miracle of transformation, the very glory of the creator, the one who makes out of nothing, the one who doesn't need everything working in favour of him to do his miracle of transformation. And he wrote these words many years later. I wonder whether this incident actually triggered them. And Peter writes, and I think we've got this text here from 2 Peter, he says, his divine power, Christ's, has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. That is the heart of Christian religion. We as Christians, evangelicals, Baptists can take this for granted. We can live and talk about having a relationship with God in such blase terms. But from God's perspective, this is a total new paradigm. This is something totally undeserved and it totally comes from Him. And when He gives, you see what He gives? He gives us everything. There will not be a need for an update or an upgrade. Everything we need for a godly life has been infused into us at the same time as we have been declared righteous. We've been written into God's book, but this is no legal fiction. Your experience might not match this, but it doesn't deny the fact that everything that we need to live has been given. And this miracle, this day, proves this. He says, through this, these, he has given us his very great and precious promises. We've been married to this God. He's given vows so that through them you may participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption in the world caused by its evil desires. No longer does the drumbeat of this culture dictate how you dance. You are absolutely free. Here is the essence of God's idea of the new model religion. You contribute nothing. In fact, you have nothing to commend you to God. He does not save you because you wedged him or leveraged him. You contribute nothing. But then we possess everything. There is nothing more than it could have. So then, how shall we then live? To quote the old phrase, Jesus simply says, Be what you have become. That's the theme for the Christian life. Sure, everything will mitigate against you believing this, but be what you have become. If you want to be faithful, realise that your faith has already been given as a gift. If you want to be righteous, realise that you are already righteous with him. He regards you as spiritual. Don't strive for it. Exploit it. Live out the gift. That's the nature of it. As we leave this scene, it's an incredible scene, but I imagine right at this moment, as we're living in this moment, we're actually living as two time plates are overlapping. This is an incredible moment in human history, this day, this wedding, because there are people standing there who know the wine is running low and would have been running around trying to salvage wine, pouring dregs from someone, some fool who's left their cup there into theirs. And they'd be content with drinking the old wine of man-made religion. And yet there are others that the master of the feasts is calling and he's handing them a cup of wine that will satisfy, of wine that will never run out, of wine that will transform completely from the inside to the out. You see, Mary She did something quite unwitting that day. She tripped the switch that rolled history onwards to the culmination, which was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he became the model of our indestructible life that day. And that cannot be taken from this day. So as you go into this week, do not say to yourself, my, I must change. Oh, how pathetic I am. Don't say, I will change myself. You say, I will be changed. And live out of that. It's a very different world, depending on that sense. You know, there are some of us to this day, Who've never quite resolved to accept the transforming gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who quite can't quite trust that that He's that good, that He won't require something of them later, just to make a little bit of insurance, lest this wedding go foul. That's not the way it is. And I want to say, if that's you this morning, that the Lord holds out the cup of transformation, run by his blood and he puts it into your hand and he says to you, as he says to us all, taste and you will see that the Lord is God. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And what is dilute? What is defiled will be cleansed away from the inside out. That's the way he sees you and forever. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for our great fortune to live this side of this day where we no longer have to live in the age of ceremonies and symbols that did nothing to transform us. We thank you for this great opportunity that we have to live this side of this mark of history, where we can be new paradigm people. We can have the transformation of God himself living within us, working through us, and cleansing us and transforming us forever. Lord, we simply want to say in the quietness of this moment this morning, thank you so much for intervening back into our history and our experience to give us the good wine. Amen. Amen.